Right, so we're at Genesis chapter 35, and next week is Genesis chapter 36. Now, don't stay home uh, that night, but Genesis 36 is all genealogies. That's all it is. And so I'm looking for a volunteer who wants to do the scripture reading that week. But, uh, but you know, don't stay home. Uh, there's an important message that I'm going to preach from there. And uh, what, what we're going to do, we're going to look at the facts of, you know, why... Everything is mentioned in there that is mentioned, but I'm also going to teach some very important uh, lessons about Edom and what they are as a nation, and because they're talked about quite a bit in Bible prophecy, so there's some really important things to help us understand prophecy that we need to know about Edom as a nation, and so uh, it's if, if you've been kind of looking ahead, wondering what I'm going to preach, and thinking, man, that one is going to be boring, uh, don't stay home, I don't think it'll be that boring, all right, at least I'm going to try not to make it boring, but anyway... We're in chapter 35 tonight, and so just a reminder of where we're at. So two weeks ago, we saw how Jacob was on his way back home, um, uh, and, but he, and he ends up meeting Esau. It ends up being a good meeting. He was afraid at first, but it ended up being good. And then, uh, you know, Esau meets up with them. They're wanting to go back home. Esau's like, let me tell, you know, help you. But Jacob said, no, I'm going to lead on softly. I don't want to overdrive the animals. I don't want to wear out my wife and kids. We got to take things easy. So he's been kind of taking his time now. And so last week, while they're kind of dragging their feet, getting back home, Dinah, she got herself in trouble when she went uh, in Shechem and saw the daughter to see the daughters of the land. And she ends up getting defiled there. And then the whole family ends up getting in trouble because Simeon and Levi went and were very fierce in their anger. And they were very cruel in what they did. And they destroyed the men of that city. So now here we are in this story in chapter 35. And Jacob, he's about to go home, but he has to go through Bethel first before he can get back to the land of his fathers. Now, how many have ever heard the term back to Bethel? Right? Back to Bethel. That's what the title of tonight's message is, back to Bethel. That's a common thing that you hear. There's songs called back to Bethel. There's a back to Bethel camp meeting. That's a pretty well-known camp meeting. And if you've ever been around camp meetings very much, you've definitely heard a back to Bethel sermon. Okay, and uh, and the truth is, um, you know that the concept of back to Bethel, it is a good concept. There, it is a there's a, some good principles here that I think we can learn and that are legit. And I do think in the camp meeting world, they kind of take some of these things to some extremes. But I want us to look at some of these things as we go through this chapter tonight, and because uh, I think there's some really good lessons that we can learn from this. So, because what does that term back to Bethel mean? All right, what does that mean? Because you've heard it, and it has a meaning. So let's go ahead and start reading verse 1. And it says, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. So remember, many chapters before, after Jacob cheats his brother, after he goes and he's pretty much on the run, he's going to go to his uh, mother's brother's land, he on the way there. He's uh, he's there in Bethel, and that's where he had that dream, or he had that vision, and he saw that ladder going up to heaven, and he saw God in that vision, and so God's telling Jacob, "I want you to go back to that place where you were when you fled from your brother Esau." And so when people make use that term back to Bethel, one of the things it is, you could say it's a place of remembrance where you had an encounter with God. Okay. 
Now, that's why they would call a camp meeting like the Back to Bethel camp meeting. Okay, the whole goal of a camp meeting or a revival meeting is, you know, we're going to go there and hopefully we're going to have an experience. Okay, now listen, don't don't let the camp meeting people ruin it for you. You know what? It's okay for you. It's a good thing if you can go somewhere and just the Lord speaks to you in a great way. It's okay. In fact, you know, I kind of wish I was preaching this next week because of the fact that there's some good principles we can get to, you know, because this place next Wednesday will be the last service that we're having here. And the truth is, this is kind of a Bethel to many people. You know, maybe it was this church where you got right with God. Maybe it was this church, you know, for many where they first heard the gospel and where they got saved. You know, this is a place where, you know, we have a lot of good memories of spiritual things that have taken place. And so for all of us that have ever been a part of this place, this place will always be special to us. And, you know, you know, 20 years from now, we would love to come back here and have a service. And I don't want to say a whole lot about that because I'm going to be talking about some of those things on Sunday uh, during my morning service. But whenever people talk about going back to Bethel, they're ta- what they're kind of saying is spiritually, you need to get back to that place where you first met God. Because sometimes we get backslidden, and I believe that Jacob here is in a very backslidden state. We're going to see that. Jacob, he's not really the same as he was when he first left. Because when he left his father's house, you know, he had been, you know, following his father's laws and rules and things that were better. Now that he's been with Laban the Syrian for over 20 years, you know what? Some of Laban the Syrians rubbed off on him, we're going to see. And so he's now, here he is all these years later, and he's back in this place where he got started, and it's a place of remembrance of where he once was at one time. And there's a lot of people out there, they need to have a back to Bethel experience. People who were in the house of God at one time, people who were serving God at one time, and they got a little too caught up in the things of the world. And they got, they didn't lose their salvation, but they got away from God. They're no longer serving the Lord. They need a back to Bethel experience. And so if a camp meeting wants to call themselves back to Bethel, you know, and they're just trying to get people, you know, revived and fired up, I think that's fine. I think that's a good concept. It's really a good name when you stop and think about it. So it's a place of remembrance where you first had an encounter with God. Verse 2 says, Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Now, let me ask you, why did he wait until he got to Bethel to say all this? Think about this. For, you know, 20 years, you know, he was working amongst Laban. Why didn't he tell his wives, you know, obviously they were serving other gods. Okay, now Jacob didn't know in the one story that Rachel had stolen her father's gods, but he had to have known, being married to her all those years, that she was into other gods and that she worshipped these things. But yet we don't see him making any commandment for his household. And not remember, not just for his wife and kids, but for all of his servants, all his people. We don't see him commanding them the way he was supposed to. When he's in with Laban, he's kind of doing what they do there in that land. And that's not good. And that's what happens quite a bit when people get backslidden. They get away from God. And then what do they do? They start conforming to the world. They start looking like the world. They start acting like the world. And Laban, when he goes back to Bethel, all of a sudden he starts to remember the way things used to be. And he kind of got a good look at himself. And he's looking at the way he's dressed. Like, this is the way I was dressed 20-some years ago when I met with God last time. I look like the crowd I just came from. 
He's looking at all that God has given him. He's looking at his wives and his children and his servants, and he's seeing how they're dressed. And he's thinking, I'm on the way back to the land of my father. They have a different way. They have different customs. What they are doing are the ways of God. What we are doing are not. And you know what he did? He had a revival, and he said, you know what? We're changing clothes. He told him, you know what? Get rid of these garments. Hey, this is a great passage you can use for some dress standards in your life. You know, when you have that back to Bethel experience, hopefully it will change your wardrobe. We got too many Christians today that look just like the world. And they act just like the world. And they have all the same problems that the world has. They're just as saved as you and I are. They're just as saved, but at the same time, they're not right with God. They're not doing what they should be doing. And they need to get some separation in their life and I think it's interesting how as soon as he goes here, he's telling them, now he tells them, put away the strange gods. I hope, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I hope that this is where they got rid of those gods that Rachel had. Have you ever wondered about that? You know, I, I've always wondered that. You know, what happened to those gods that she stole? You know, hopefully, you know, they got rid of them here. They got rid of those garments. And so we need to have, we need to, some people need to have an experience like this. You know, it's a place where you separate yourself from the world. You know, a lot of people that were saved, you know, they it was when they got into a specific church, or sometimes even when they went to a revival meeting or a camp meeting or some kind of conference where they got right with God, where they started learning. Because, you know, a lot of pastors today are scared to preach about dress standards or afraid to preach about separation and holy living. And a lot of times, the first time people hear about these things are at the camp meetings at the preacher's conferences where everybody gets bold. And all of a sudden, people aren't afraid to preach the truth because it's, you know, all the seasoned Christians. But a lot of times, you have some people that sneak in there that, you know, didn't know this was for, you know, just the preachers and stuff. And they start hearing these things, and then they get things right. And that and that's a good thing. You know, we want that, but, you know, pastors ought to preach that way all the time. You know, not just around fellow preachers. But Jacob, all this time, he's been hanging out with Laban. It's all rubbed off on him. And it's like when he's heading home, he knows it's time to make some changes. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, they just they get away from God and get away from the things of God. Whenever they do make that attempt to maybe come back, you know, they, they know I, I probably should fix some things. There's a lot of people out there that have gotten out of church that'll, because they feel like, now nobody's telling them this, but they feel like if I go back to church, I should probably get a haircut. You know, I should probably, you know change some things. And let me, you know, have we, have anybody in this church ever seen anybody in this church be mean to anyone who has ever walked in here for how they were dressed? We've never done that, have we? You know, and and how often do you hear me preaching on dress standards and what people ought to wear? I mean, how often do I preach on that? It's pretty rare. But you know how many people today are, they're afraid to walk in these doors because of, how they're dressed, how they look, even though we are very accepting, we are very loving, we are very gracious, and they're always like, well, it's because all those people in those church are going to judge me, but you know what? They know, okay, it's not going to be us. They blame us, but it's the Holy Spirit that's going to be all over them. If they actually come back to Bethel, the Holy Spirit's just going to be all over their case. And they do, they blame judgmental Christians. But that's not the case. My dad's church, I was there, you know, in that church forever. I never saw anyone in that church being mean to people for how they were dressed. 
But yeah, people all the time would act like, oh, I don't want to go back. You know, I, don't, I you know, they're, they're, they're too judgmental. They're not going to like how I'm dressed. You know, nobody ever said anything about that. But you know what? It was called conviction. That's what it was. The Holy Spirit was going to be all over them. And you know, the truth is here, we don't see God telling Jacob to get rid of those gods, to change your clothes. But it's like when he knows he's going to go to the place where God is, it's like he knows we need to take care of these things. And, and that's how it naturally is for a lot of people. But they do. They just blame judgmental Christians. But if they were honest, they would say, I don't want to go back to that church because I don't like the Holy Ghost. And if I go back to Bethel, he's going to be all over my case. And that, that's, if they were honest, that's what they would say. Because we have, we've never been mean to anybody that was backslidden. You know, if somebody's backslidden, they come back to church, we're thrilled. You know, and, and nobody's judging them. Nobody tries to tell them what to do. It's just they don't like the Holy Spirit. So verse 3, And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. So um, this uh, event that he's talking about here was that event where Jacob saw the ladder going into heaven. So Bethel was a very special place because God had met with Jacob, and this was a place, we looked at this before, where God had made the promise to Abraham. Genesis twelve seven, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there build me an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hay on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And then it's mentioned again in Genesis chapter 13. So this was a special place because this was a place not only where he had had an encounter with God, but it was a place where Abraham had also had an encounter with God. And so the place, and like I said before, I don't believe Bethel was like some kind of magical location. It's just what was important about Bethel was who was there and what had been done there. And of course, God had been there. That made it very important. But God had made it very specific and special promise to Abraham there. So this was, this was just a very special place. And it's okay for us to have places that are special to us. Okay? And I don't want to talk a whole lot about that because I'm going to be talking about that on Sunday a little bit. But you know what? You know, anytime I drive by the place where I got saved, I think about that. I look at the window that goes into the room, that was my bedroom, where I remember getting saved. I remember years after I got saved, I was actually at that house, um, the pastor that was there later, I gave his son guitar lessons, and I remember I was there one time, and I asked if I'd get my picture taken in that room. You know why? Because that was the place where I got saved. And so it was just, it's a special place to me. It's okay for you to have places like that. You know, hopefully there's places that are special for you and your wife. You know, maybe a place where you got married or the place where you got engaged. And you can talk about those places. And you, you remember those places, and they're special to you. It's okay to have things like that. You know, it's not like we're worshiping a location. It's just it means a lot to us. So this was a special place. So verse 4 says, And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Notice they got rid of their earrings, amen. You get right with God, man. You're going to get rid of your earrings, right? But... Uh, you know, but I, now, what was wrong? Problem with the earrings? Okay, obviously, it was you know the problem was 
the culture that it came from and why they did it. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why they wore the earrings and what those earrings symbolized, but it symbolized something to those people during that time. It's not that so much that wearing earrings were the sin. It was what it meant because we see later in the Bible where, you know, servants, if they decided they wanted to be uh, with that master forever, they get their ear pierced. They bore their ear, ear through with an awl and they'd have that earring and then everyone knew this person was a servant. Okay. Why do people wear earrings today? Well, it used to be because they were queers. You know, now it's because guys want to look like queers. You know, I guess, you know, it used to be homosexual. I guess now it's metrosexual. So, uh, you know, and, you know, I guess the meaning of it changes over time. You know, how long will it take, Brother Tommy, for you to forget that it ever had anything to do with homosexuality? Well, it'll be way after I'm gone. And as long as there's a memory that it ever meant homosexual, I will never be for it. I will never do it. And plus, I'm not going to poke a hole in my ear. Forget that. I don't even like getting shots, so let alone piercing myself like that. But anyway, so notice too, um, it says that he hid them under the oak by Shechem. So think about it. There's like, you know, he's, there's a lot of people here. They've got all these earrings, all these gods, and he hides them under an oak in Shechem. wonder what ever happened to those things. I wonder if anybody's ever found those. You know, there's probably a lot of value there, a lot of treasure there. So uh, they make a good Indiana Jones movie or whatever. But uh, uh, who, who knows uh, where, where that is, if anybody ever found those. But verse 5, because I think uh, I, I seems to me like he should have destroyed them. You know, I, I'd have melted it all down. He didn't do it. He just hit it. I don't know why that is, but it's just an interesting fact. Verse 5, and they journeyed in the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Again, this is a part of the blessing of God that's on him. Because you say, why would they even pursue after the sons of Jacob? Remember what they did in the chapter before. After what they had done to Shechem, Jacob's like, you know, you're going to make me stink amongst the inhabitants of this land. People are going to want to kill us. But you know what? Even though they had done a really bad thing, God still protected them, and he kept the people scared of them. And it wasn't so much because of their power, it was because God was blessing them, God was being good to them. And so, when you go back to Bethel, God often takes over and makes a way for you that you didn't think possible. Jacob thought, we're in trouble. You know, after what my sons did, we're going to be in trouble when we go back into this land. People aren't going to take kindly to us. They're not going to receive us. We're going to have battles. We're going to be attacked. And a lot of people, when they get right with God... Or, or, you know, they think, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to live a Christian life. I'm not going to be able to handle all these things. But let me tell you, when you just do what God tells you to do and you're just obedient, he will always make a way for you. I'm not going to say it will always be easy, but he will make a way. He will make a way. You will be able to do it. He's not going to tempt you with more than you can bear. He will help you succeed. You can be a good, productive, sold-out Christian. There's nothing stopping you from doing that except yourself. So verse 6, So Jacob came to Luz, which was in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alan Bacoth, which means uh, oak of weeping. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Pananaram and blessed him. 
And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. Now, we had seen before where God had told him he was going to be called Israel, but it's like now is when he's saying, Don't call yourself, you're not Jacob anymore. You're not that, don't go by that name anymore. Now you are going to be Israel. And you know what? Going back to Bethel, when you get, when you do go back to Bethel, spiritually speaking, figuratively speaking, you're going to be a new person. Okay? Now this is not, don't, going back to Bethel is not about salvation. Okay? But it's about revival. Is what it is. And that's why, so that's why you hear a lot of songs about it. Camp meeting, it's a, it's a uh, popular camp meeting topic. And you know, when a person gets saved, they are a new creature in Christ. Okay? But, in the flesh, they're still the same person quite often, aren't they? You know, and when a person gets saved, that doesn't mean just all of a sudden now everything is just going to change in their life and they're not going to have marriage problems anymore and they're not going to have problems with drinking and all these things anymore. That's not what that means. Okay? When a person gets saved, it just means that they're saved, they're a new creature in Christ, you know, their sins are not imputed unto them anymore. So when they die, they're going to go to heaven. But you know what we need with people after they get saved is they do need revival in their life and they need to change their life. They do, after they get saved, it's important that people repent of their sins. I believe Jacob was already saved before all this happened. But notice, they didn't change their clothes until this chapter. They didn't get rid of all these false gods and things. He didn't clean house until after he was saved. It was later that revival came in his life. And I wish everybody got revived, you know, physically, you know, as soon as they got saved. But not everybody does. For some people, it come, it's not until many years later. A lot of people get saved, and it's years later before they're ever in church. It's years later before they're ever serving God. Some people, they, get saved, they grow up in church. You know, they, you know, they get saved at a young age grow up around the things of God. They know how a Christian's supposed to live. Like Jacob did, he grew up in his father's house. He knew the ways of God. But then he got away from it for a long time. He got out on his own. But And that happens a lot. People, they grow up, you know, they have their own family, and they do, they just get sidetracked. They get away from the things that they were raised in. Those people need a revival in their life. They need a back-to-Bethel experience. They need something to remind them of where they came from and what they once were and just kind of shake them up so they will get on fire for God again. And that's basically what I think is going on here in Jacob's life. And so uh, in verse 11, I believe it's where we're at. Verse, yeah, verse 11, it says, And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. So all these years later, after all the mistakes that Jacob has made, God's showing here that he's still going to use Jacob. And Jacob made a lot of mistakes. Jacob got pretty far away from God in a lot of different ways, but God never forgot his promise that he had made to Jacob, 
And here he is, 20-some years later, and God's reminding him of the promise that he gave, and he's still using him. And you know what? That's a great lesson, too, for saved people who get away from God. God wants to give you life. He wants you to have it more abundantly. God wants you. God wants to give you blessings. God wants to use you in a great way. And thankfully, when we get away from God, if we will repent, if we will get right, you know what? He'll take us back, and he'll bless us again. In fact, God's ready and willing and anxious to do that very thing. And there are, there's Christians all over, there's safe people, I, I talk to safe people all the time when I'm out soul winning that are away from God. They have not been in church in years doing absolutely nothing for God. You know what? They need a back to Bethel experience. They need to get back in church again. And I've seen it before where people who've gotten away from God and they'll come and they'll visit church and they're just, you know, I've seen them in there just crying through the whole thing, just emotional through it all. They just get overwhelmed remembering what they used to have, remembering what they had experienced at one time. But a lot of times they just they get stubborn and they come, they get a little emotional, but then they leave and they don't they don't want to come back. And it's best to just get right, do the right thing, let God use you again. So verse 16, it says, And they journeyed from Bethel. And there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, and Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass when she, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Benoni means son of sorrow, which is kind of a depressing name. And so Jacob, he ends up calling him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel, uh, you know, this is a sad moment for Rachel because, or for Jacob, because this is his favorite wife. Now keep that in mind, because we're about to see something here that seems kind of random and seems really bad. But remember, Jacob was his favorite wife, or Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. And there was a lot of problems in Jacob's family because of favoritism. We're going to start seeing that in a couple weeks. When it comes to Joseph and how Jacob played favorites with Joseph and it caused all kinds of problems in his family. And that's how it always was with these guys back in the day. They always had a favorite wife. Even in the story of Samuel, you know, Hannah, she was the favorite wife, you know, of of her husband. And that's just kind of how it was. And it's just it's just a bad thing. So, again, you don't want to have multiple wives. But he did so. Rachel dies, verse 19, and Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. So there's a couple things I want to point out here. So first off, a lot of times people will bring up how, uh, I think it's in Genesis 49, when Jacob is giving instructions for his burial, that he tells them to bury him in the cave Machpelah, which is where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah were buried, and it's where he had buried Leah. And some people will teach that, you know, Leah ended up becoming the favorite wife because that's where, that's who he buried in that cave. Well, I personally believe probably the real reason was because, you know, Rachel, they were not in that land yet when Rachel died. And they weren't going to carry 
a dead body a long distance, especially back in those days, and before they had embalming and all those things. So I think he buried Rachel where he did because of where they were. But I think had they already been in that land and he'd had access to that cave, he'd have probably buried her there because she was definitely his favorite. There's, there's no doubt about that. So I don't know if there's anything super significant to Leah being buried there. But at the same time, notice though in the story, and I'm not trying to add anything to the scriptures here. But notice in the story how it just goes, and it tells us how Reuben lay with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Okay, now that was a terrible thing. Now, one reason for sure the Bible tells us about this event is because this is where Reuben loses the right of the firstborn. Look what it says in Genesis 49 in verse 3. It says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defiledst thou it, he went up to my couch. So, uh, this right here is kind of what got him in trouble. And then you'll notice the next two sons, because it was Reuben, then it was Simeon and Levi, and it says, Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, Come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So right here in these in uh, chapters 34 and 35, we're seeing the major sins that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi did that kind of caused them to get put on the back burner. And then when J Jacob goes on to bless Judah, he's like, it's you who your brethren will praise. And Judah is kind of that chosen tribe where the Messiah will come from. And so could have been Reuben, but Reuben did a really bad thing. Could have been Simeon and Levi, but they did a really bad thing. But Judah, we don't really see Judah doing anything super bad. In fact, it's Judah... I mean, we do see a bad story about what happened with his uh, daughter-in-law. We'll look at that later. But you know, we, it was Judah that stopped his brother from killing Joseph. He didn't stop him from selling him, but he stopped him from killing them. Was it Judah that did that, or was that Reuben? I might be getting that wrong. But what's that? Was that Reuben that did that? All right, I got that fact wrong. But I believe it was Judah who offered his sons. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. He told, when uh, he wanted to take Benjamin to Egypt. He told his father, you know, slay my two sons if I don't, you know, bring Benjamin back. And it just kind of shows how I think he be kind of became more noble and a little more thoughtful and everything. But uh, but either way, these things were they were major sins that took place. Now, let me but, but here's the question. OK, we know why the Bible tells us the story, because it's showing us what happened with Reuben that got him in trouble. But why would Reuben do something like this? Okay, this was a, it's a horrible sin. Even among the Gentiles, we see in the New Testament, Paul mentioned, you know, that it, I mean, it's a horrible thing for one to have his father's wife. So why would Reuben do something like this? Is it because he was a pervert? Okay, which is possible. However, I don't think that was the reason he did it. I think what we're seeing here is something similar to what we see. Remember with Absalom, how he went and lay with all his father's concubines? Now, why did he do that? Him doing that, and he did it basically in the sight of the people of Israel, it was a way of defiling them to 
to where it would be an abomination for his father to ever be with them again. Is pretty much what he was doing. And what I personally think is happening here, after Rachel dies, I think Reuben wanted Leah, his mother, to be Jacob's favorite wife. And so he went and defiled Bilhah, who was Rachel's handmaid. That way, his mom would kind of have, you know, the, the main role. That's what I think, personally. And so I think it was something, I don't think his mom told him to do this, but I think it was uh, just, a, just a nasty thing he did, though, kind of wanting to help his mom. And that's just my opinion on that. I'm not trying to add the scriptures, but I, you know, doing something like that, it's either because you're, you would do that either because you're a pervert or because you are, you're trying to defile on purpose. And there was usually a reason for that, just like there was with Absalom. So that's, that's my take on that. But either way, it really doesn't matter. I'm not going to argue with anybody on that. But verse 23 <clears throat> says, so then it goes on and it's listing the sons of Jacob with, uh, that he had with the wives. It says the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon and Levi, and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpha, Leah's handmaid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came unto Isaac, his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were a hundred and fourscore years. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So something interesting here, when you stop and think about it, it's amazing that Isaac was still alive, considering he wasn't in very good shape over 20 years ago. Remember when he's pretty much blind, and he's wanting to bless his sons before he dies, he still went on for another 20-some years. All right, That's kind of a, a crazy thing to think about. But Jacob makes it back before his father dies. And I imagine part of that, you know, what might have made Isaac hold on is he probably wanted to see his son Jacob again. He was probably wondering what happened to him. And maybe he's kind of at peace now that Jacob's back home, now that he knows all is well with his son. And the Bible says he died and he was gathered unto his people. And this is another good example, too, of just showing that, you know, people went to heaven in the Old Testament. They were, you know, gathered unto their people. And I preached on that before, just showing the different uses of that and just showing how, you know, you know this is definitely a reference to just being gathered with the saints, being gathered to those uh, who were saved. Uh, and uh, it was uh, Jesus that brought up the fact how at the burning bush, God told Moses that he is not, uh, uh, that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And I like that, too, because it's just a reminder, too, uh, that the Abraham's bosom doctrine is stupid. Okay? They, they try to bring up the fact, they try to go into all the Greek and Hebrew words and talk about Sheol and things like that. But either way, no matter how you define Sheol, Hades, all that, it means the grave. It means the place of the dead. Why would the living, like Isaac, be in the place of the dead? It doesn't make it doesn't make any sense at all. It's completely contrary to what the Bible says, and that's just dispensationalism. It's a mixture of dispensationalism 
and just weird Catholic teaching from the book of Nicodemus. That's all it is. And I don't want, I don't want to re-preach that. But anyway, so while this, uh, in this chapter it starts out good, it ends kind of bad, you know, in a way, because, you know, we see, you know, we see some death in here. It mentions Deborah dying. There was sorrow there. We see Rachel dying. We see Isaac dying in this story. We see the sin that Reuben does in this story. And this had to have been a tough thing for Jacob to deal with. And something people need to understand is just because you have revival, it doesn't mean that everything is going to go great in your life. And that's the mistake a lot of people make when it comes to revival. A lot of people want that back to Bethel experience because their life's a wreck, their life's a mess, and they think, I'm just going to go to this meeting, I'm going to have me a good emotional spell while I'm there, I'm going to do some crying, I'm going to get right with God, I'm going to rededicate my life, and then everything's going to go good for me again. No, that's not the way it works. In fact, I mean, you can be right with God and still have a lot of hard times. You can still have a lot of problems. Job, for example, is, is proof of that. We see constant battles with people throughout the Bible, you know, that were people that were right with God, people that were doing right. We see horrible things that take place in their life with some of the greatest men in the Bible. We see them go through horrible things. We see them suffer major tragedies. But here's the thing. Hey, people who are right with God deal with tragedy. People who are not right with God deal with tragedy. People who are right with God, they have the comfort of God. They have the help of the Holy Spirit. They have a peace that passes understanding. They have God's help through those things where people who are not right with God don't have those things. And too many people today, they never really have that back to Bethel experience because their back to Bethel experience, and that's where they go and they just make a deal with God. They're going to go to that camp meeting. They're going to go to that back to Bethel meeting and they think, I'm going to go to the altar and, and in their minds, what they're praying, they're telling God, all right, Lord, I'm ready to serve you if you will make my problems go away. If you will magically make my marriage better. If you will, you know, fix my financial problems and do this and do that. They make all these deals with God. And the truth is we need to always remember as Christians that we are not worthy of salvation. We are not worthy of God's blessing. We're not worthy of any of these things. And we don't make deals with God. We don't need, we see people in the Bible making deals with God. But I still don't recommend it. I believe the attitude we need to just have is, you know what? We just ought to have a desire to want to be close to God. We ought to be amazed by God. We ought to just worship God no matter what. No matter what happens to us, He can do whatever to us. Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. And then, if God blesses us, great. But either way, you know, we just ought to want to serve God no matter what. Because challenges are going to come one way or the other. You know, I don't notice, you know, Christians not have to deal with anything during 2020. In fact, it seems like Christians get to deal with extra stuff. I mean, don't Christians often get to deal with extra problems because they're Christians? You know, that's that's the way it's gone throughout history. A lot of the persecution that comes. But you know what? We have God with us through those things. And we ought to be okay with that. God, you know, Having revival, this isn't something that we look at just because this is going to be our way of just finally getting on easy street. Too many people, that's why they're going to go to church. Well, you know, my, my life's a wreck. My bills are piling up. I'm going to go to church, and then everything's going to be good. No, wrong. It, that, in fact, things might get a lot worse. 
physically speaking, but spiritually, things will always get better. And that needs to be the goal in our life. And you know, I'm afraid too many Christians, you know, too many saved people, they've never even had the first Bethel experience. You know, I, it's, I, it's tragic how many saved people have just never, and, and I hate saying this because I don't want to sound like, you know, a Pentecostal holy roller or a camp, but they've never had a real experience with God. And, and I'm sorry, doing laps around the auditorium, you know, during a good song is not what, is not what I'm talking about. And it's, it's one of those things, it is a difficult thing to explain. Okay, you know, I, I think probably the most uh, intense encounters I could say that I've had with God, they weren't even during church services. You know, they weren't even during camp meetings and things. And, you know, a lot of these things are very personal things, too. That, you know, frankly, you know, I don't even really feel like just talk, you know, telling everybody about. You know what I'm it, it, it's, it's a hard thing to explain, but at the same time, a lot of saved people, they've never cashed in on many of the benefits that come with being a Christian. And really, you know, having, you know, experiencing a moving of the Holy Ghost, it is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. And, and sometimes, it, you know, it, it can in many ways be a rare thing sometimes. And, you know, but people want it so bad that literally I think what happens at a lot of these camp meetings is they try to conjure it up, is what's going on. Because, you know, when it comes to, you know, things I've experienced in my life and things I've seen in my life, I can't tell you how it happened, why it happened. You know, I, I can't do it. I can't do that. All right, but everybody who's ever experienced something like that, and I'm not even going to tell you that nobody's ever had a real encounter with God at a camp meeting. I think some people probably have. What happens, though, is they try to recreate it and conjure it up later, and they want it so bad, they're, it's like they're faking it, and they're going to manipulate it, and that's not good. And, you know, the one time I remember seeing something like, a couple times, but um, my wife might remember this one time we went to a youth conference that, like, you know, the Holy Spirit really moved and really did a work with a lot of the teens at that. And, and I think it was real. I was there. I believe what happened there was real. And it was. It was a very moving thing. It was an interesting experience. You know, I think it freaked a lot of the teens out because they'd never seen anything like that before. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't anything weird either. But it was. It was a very special thing. And I'll never forget, though, the next year, it was so obvious they tried to make it happen again. And they tried way too hard, and it failed miserably. And and something happened that year too. All right? Something happened, but it just it wasn't it was not the real thing. It, it just it really wasn't. I saw the same thing at football camp, where there was one year there was a you know a experience you could say. I won't go into all the details of it. It was very moving, and they did. They tried to recreate it the next year, and it just it failed miserably. You know, and the truth is, you know, I'm not, I can't get up here and do like the camp meeting preachers and tell you how to conjure up that back to Bethel experience because I don't know how. But I do know, I do know this, that, you know, people do need, every individual 
needs to come to a place in their life where they do they learn how to get a hold of God. They learn to have a real spiritual walk and a real prayer life. And, you know, how that's done, you know, there's a lot of things we could talk about. But at the end of the day, I think if a person really wanted it and they really desired it, I believe they'd be able to get it. But most people are going to experience that, though, because when Jacob, you know, when he when he came back to Bethel, he did what he needed to do. He got rid of some things. He got rid of the gods. He got rid of those clothes. I mean, he he did those things, and then he met with God again. Most people today, though, they know what they need to do, but they're not going to do it. That you know what? I think I'll just bypass Bethel. And I'll just go, I'll go another way. That's not good. And so that's all we'll say on, on that subject tonight. But uh, back to Bethel, this is something to think about and uh, something that, you know, you, ought to, you need to have those special times in your life. You need to have that special place. You know, you ought to have a special place of prayer. You know, you ought to have, there, there needs to be something special with you and God somewhere. Something that is uniquely yours and uh, you ought to look for those things, and I, I believe the Lord will help you find it because God wants to meet with us. God wants to talk to us. He wants to bless us. That's his desire. He wants that relationship with us, and we ought to work on that. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Dear God, I pray you help us to learn from the principles we see in this chapter, Lord. I pray you'll help us to uh, keep the things out of our life, Lord, that are hindering us from having fellowship with you. I pray that we will... Uh, have those special places and special moments, Lord, with you that we'll see, that I pray everyone in here, Lord, even from the youngest child in here that's saved, that they will just seek out to get to know you better and just have, uh, real, uh, spiritual experiences with you, God, where they, uh, you can become more real to them. I pray we won't just go through the motions of things that are spiritual. We won't just try to conjure things up, Lord, but I pray you'll help us to just, uh, seek after that, which is, uh, real. Lord, not so we can just have a great experience, but so we can just know you better and be closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go.